0: This is Mercy Harper, writer for research services at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with Sarah Cummings, public-private partnership and research uptake expert at Vonnegut University and founder of the KM for Development Journal to talk about the future of knowledge management. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you very much, Mercy. Thanks. So we've had a few folks involved with KM for Development on this podcast, but I have to admit that before this series on the future of KM, I didn't know too much about the KM for Dev community. So it's been a really great learning journey for me to hear about this thriving global community of KM practitioners and researchers. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today to get your thoughts about what's next for KM. But first, could you tell us a little bit about your own KM journey, how you learned about KM in the first place and what inspired you to connect KM with development?
1: My KM journey really goes through a lot of phases and it started really, I think in um, in the early eighties when I studied geography in Africa, of Africa and Asia at the University of London. And my first um, job after leaving university was at an organisation which is still going strong called CABI, which really has expertise in agriculture and the biosciences. And I was working there as an information management professional. I had a really good mentor, Margot Bellamy, um, who was really, you know, very good at uh, trying to impart information management and editing skills to me. She was very, very precise and meticulous person. And, when I went to to the Netherlands I guess I struggled a little bit really and I went to um, er, early the I think it was the year 2000 I carried on my work as an information management professional but I was really like looking for maybe you know more depth or you know being able to get a bit out of the library space although you know I really love I still really love taxonomies and Early, I think in 1999 or the year 2000, I went to this conference in Bergen in um, Sweden. No, it's in Norway. I went to this conference and I met this guy who was um, called Carl Kelseth and he was a knowledge gardener. And this was really the first time I'd heard of um, knowledge management. And it seemed to be a huge opportunity for me because, you know, traditionally information management, people were stuck in the library in in my work anyway and so you know i got was really interested in this i we wrote a paper together actually about knowledge management development strategy organizational strategy in the year 2000 but it really you know it really became something that i was very interested in early on and i went to you know the whole field was started in about this time by um, the world bank but also this organization based at Um, the International Development Research Council, IDRC, in um, Canada, it was called Bellinet. And they just started the Care for Deaf community. And so I went to this first meeting, but actually, you know, my boss at that time, I was now in the Netherlands, working for for a large um, development organisation. But my boss at that time, he was the head of the library. He really hated knowledge management. So like I was like a stealth visitor to this to this first knowledge management um, for development meeting in the Netherlands, which, you know, there are a lot of people from the World Bank and other development organisations. and it, for example, Helen Gilman of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, who's just retired, you know, she was at that meeting, too. So Nancy White. So Peter Valentine. so there are lots of people I'm still in contact with, still working with. But it was quite funny because when I look back at this meeting, the photographs, I'm never in any of the photographs because I was really not supposed to be there. And I'm <laughs> stealthily working in and out. But anyway, so I really got the knowledge management uh, for Development Bug because, you know, I think knowledge management really, the sort of principles of, you know, open knowledge sharing that for development they're really important and I think you know as somebody who comes from I have a development background and then knowledge management just seems such you know a logical thing to share knowledge to interact with colleagues in an open way all the things that knowledge management is about and um, so then you know at some point I was a member but sort of a bit on the edge and at some point in 2005 I was sitting in my office, thinking, okay, what do I want to do with my life next? What would I like to do and what could I do? And I thought, hey, why don't I start a journal um, on knowledge management for development? So I called lots of colleagues together. We had a sort of big meeting in The Hague, a stealthy, also a bit of a stealthy <laughs> meeting, where we formed, we developed this journal because, you know, obviously. There are a lot of knowledge inequalities between the Global North and the Global South, and one of them is that really the academics and practitioners um, who are writing have, you know, they find it very difficult to publish all of the, you know, there are lots of barriers to publications, you know, now there are efforts to address this with open access, but that often works counterintuitively for colleagues in the Global South, but this was you know, we had it a much more participatory approach. We had a peer support approach rather than peer review and uh, writers and an editorial board who came from all over the world, very much from the Canva Dev community, to be honest. About this time was also interested, you know, in communities of practice and the role of social capital in communities of practice. So that's when I started doing my first efforts um, at, you know, research, which you know, I, which is really my passion now. And in about 2007, I think it was Mike Powell, who I also still work with. Um, he he, and supported by me, we wrote this research proposal called Information Knowledge Management Emergent, and um, it was approved for funding by the Dutch Minis- Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So we had five years. We worked together on this information knowledge management network. And uh, we did lots of um, really interesting research with colleagues all over the world. And I was just trying to think today, what is the one that most sticks in my mind? And I think it was research done by two colleagues in Kenya. And um, what they were looking at is how the international NGOs, let me you from the other way. If you're um, a Kenyan citizen, and you want to find out um, what international NGOs are doing in your country. They, how do you do that? Like the international NGOs didn't have offices that were accessible to Kenyan citizens on the whole. They had no information centres where people could go and visit. And it, you know, you have this strange situation where you have you know a strange sort of governance situation where you have organisations which. know not always accountable to what the people what they're actually doing in the country Mm. and it reminded me very made a huge impact on me and actually influenced some later work i've done and it reminded me of i don't know if you know this about this very comic book called the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yeah you do that smiling and it was like you know there's this situation in this book where where the earth is destroyed because there's some plans for its development many millions of light worlds away that people don't know about and they miss the deadline so the earth is destroyed and you know development obviously isn't always like that but if you're an ordinary citizen wanting to find out what these organizations are doing in your own country it is quite a challenge so that had a big influence on me and it was you know we tried to take in um, into account complexity and emergence in our approaches there were lots of really you know new ways of doing evaluation new types of ways of doing knowledge sharing and also about that time I did a master's in development studies in the university of Nymeth and I you know in the In the early 80s, I'd been a bit of a flaky student. Uh, I was, but actually like I was then at this point, I guess my early 50s, I just loved studying. It seemed just a privilege to be studying and I learned really a lot. It was fantastic. But I also did this, um, my master's thesis on this representation of um, scholars from the global south in academic journals in the field of development studies. And actually, you know, although I think everybody was sort of aware of this problem um, generally in science, this was really the first study that had looked at this area in development studies. And actually what you find is that, um, you know, about 50 percent of all authorships are either from the UK or the USA. And then you have about another 35 percent from other developed countries. And then 15% roughly of authors from the global south itself. And in, you know, in development journals, that's really a problem because what it means, I think, is that your, um, you know, development is not what people do to themselves. It's not something you support people to do, but are actually, you know, you're objectifying it in a way in this sort of approach. So. You know that was and I think that sort of reflects my my sort of interest but also more slightly more i guess more a'm more of an activist um, in the role of knowledge for development and I was at a conference virtually unfortunately in Ghana last week and um, one of my, my colleagues andreas Brandner he was saying that which I think you know I thought oh yeah that's true all knowledge, all inequality has a knowledge dimension. You know, that's been a sort of a thread through all my work. Um, I was a knowledge sharing communications expert for DG DevCo for four years. And at the same time, I did my PhD, um, which also includes publications I'd written already and looking at the role of local knowledge. In sustainable development, um, yeah. So now I've been talking for a long, long time. Do you have any questions, Mercy, or not?
0: No, it, this is a fascinating journey um, from uh, from stealth origins and uh, and flaky student <laughs> origins to a, a very uh, visible figure and uh, a very dedicated student as well. Um, fascinating. Um, So I want to turn now to uh, kind of what's going on now with uh, KM and the current state of the field. Uh, What trends do you think are going to make the biggest impact on KM in the near term?
1: Well, I think that's a really good question, but I'm not sure I'm really the right person to answer it because I have really a very much development perspective. So, you know, what's happening in the knowledge, more main what we call mainstream knowledge management is, you know, I'm not terribly aware of it, to be honest. You know, what I think in in my own work, in my own research, the things that I'm really interested in at the moment are, um, you know, I'm very much interested in discourse analysis and how you use discourse analysis to analyse what's happening in international development in particular. And I think that has led us... To the, I don't know if you're aware of the agenda knowledge for development. Have you come across that? I have not. But no. So, anyway, uh, there are so much to tell. Yeah, so in about 2017, KM4Dev worked with um, Andreas Brandner, who I've mentioned before, and the UN Joint Inspection Unit, who just done an inspection on knowledge management in the UN. And together we organised an international conference at the Palais des Nations in Geneva. And that saw the birth. There we founded the Knowledge for Development Partnership, which is an international NGO based in Vienna, which is actually advocated for an agenda knowledge for development, which is um, based on the sustainable development goals but Mm. um one of you know one of my research papers actually is looking at discourses on knowledge in the sustainable development goals and what you find is that um, actually um for example local knowledge is only mentioned once in sustainable development goals as a subset of um biodiversity whereas you know from a development perspective and I think you know this I would argue that all development starts from you know local knowledge and local realities, and this is sort of missing in the SDG so what we did we there's we have the knowledge for development partnership, and um, we're now doing lots lots of other things as well we've created this agenda with you know about a hundred other people ranging from senior experts to students about what knowledge needs to be in the sustainable development goals? And we developed 14 knowledge development goals. And um, one of them actually is the role of large development organizations based on large development organizations and how they shouldn't drown out, you know, the local voices, which is actually going back to the story of the Kenyan research and the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But um, particularly, we focus on the importance of local knowledge, but also, you know, um, one of the, the most recent iteration is um, of the Agenda Knowledge for Development has been Knowledge Development Goal 14, which is the role of arts and culture. You know, I think we all recognise that arts, literature, all of these things are what give value to our lives, you know, and so we're suggesting that in this knowledge development goal that you know the importance of how literature and novels is to our human experience and this sort of aspect of the arts and culture is totally missing mm. from the SDGs for all its strengths so that was one of the things that's you know so I guess maybe trying to put maybe knowledge society into you know development policy would be one of the things that I think is important in knowledge management field. And actually something we're working with at cam um, dev at the moment, we're doing a lot of work on is the decolonization of knowledge. Again, you know, this idea that all inequality has a knowledge dimension, but actually I think by looking, you know, this work on the decolonization of knowledge, particularly recognizes that this inequality quite often has deeply historical roots, so that's that's you know, and I think this whole um, equality and exclusion debate, I would argue that that's really important also for knowledge management teams, if you like, in more mainstream KM. You know, so this is one thing we're really working a lot on. We've and actually. Actually, strangely enough, the pandemic has given us a huge opportunity because it was no longer possible to meet physically. And uh, we've had lots, we came for deaf, we've had lots of um, monthly knowledge cafes where we've had, you know, huge participation from co- of colleagues from Africa and, um, and Asia, or despite there's a bit of a time challenge to get both groups together and you know we've totally also at the same time we have new members of the core team the management team you know we have you may have met i think you might have interviewed Gladys Kamboy is she one of the people yeah you yes. have yeah she's an incredibly dynamic young um young kenyan who is also very active in our group and that she you know she's been a champion mentor it in mentoring other young people facing the same challenges but we you know the whole group has become a lot less northern European and U.S. based but we have m- many more voices so that's really really cool from our perspective and I think that is also interesting these are also issues maybe not grappling with the decolonization of knowledge but I do think you know grappling with you know making our knowledge, sharing practices more inclusive is something for more general KM as well.
0: Absolutely. I think all of these um, factors are ones that would resonate for a lot of, um, especially like kind of uh, leading edge, forward-thinking organizations. We see a lot of them um, really focused on those UN uh, sustainability goals. We see Mm. folks trying to... um, build a more equitable base of KM contributions from their um, their uh, global employee base so that all the contributions aren't coming from U.S. Mm-hmm. and Europe and that folks from wherever else around the world are, are also being recognized as experts who can contribute knowledge. Um, so for those kind of forward thinking organizations, what are some of the more practical kind of tactical things that you think KM teams can do to kind of live live out those those goals and ambitions?
1: Okay, so I think probably there are two things. I think one of the things we've tried to do in KM4Dev, and you know, I think I have contributed to that really, is to try and have a very certainly in the management team, but also in the community, in the community itself, trying to be really like open and welcoming so that these alternative or new voices do feel welcomed and supportive, supported. So I think that's important. Um, and actually, you know, also getting away a bit from, you know, this is, the, I, I mean, I totally agree that opening the, the types of voices that are being heard, the types of knowledge being used, is more just, but we also really, I think, need to recognise that it gives us better knowledge, yeah? because we it's more fit for purpose to solve the sort of complex and wicked problems that we're facing if everybody has a voice and all knowledges can be heard, yeah? So I think that's really important, but also on the other hand, I also think that it's really important to keep an, a good evidence base of what's happening. Because you know this whole debate, what i was talking that I was talking about earlier about um the contribution of global uh, of um scientists from the global south, for example, you know I think you need to measure these things to you know to find to follow the trends and to look for look for the practices that are helping and in my in my own research, this whole decolonization of knowledge debate. There's a huge academic emphasis on um, epistemic or knowledge-related injustices, you know, that, for example, you know, the classic case is the, the the black man who is accused in To Kill a Mockingbird. Nobody believes his evidence, despite the fact he's obviously telling the truth. And, you know, this idea of testimonial injustice, but... Um, so in my research work, what I'm trying to do is more focus on epistemic justice. So rather than only focusing on the negative, looking at what focusing on the positive does. So like looking for the, you know, the, the things that are making a change for the better, even if they're quite small things. Um, so I think that's also another strategy. Look for the look for the good practices. That things we like to doing knowledge management anyway, let's be honest.
0: Absolutely, and and you've set me up well because I wanted to ask you about research next. Um, mm-hmm. What do what do you think uh, future direction KM research should take? Are there are there topics that have been missed or methodologies that need to be um, employed further?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I sort of, I mean, as I said before, I think the the thread going through all my work is you know, knowledge inequalities and how to dress, address them. And in terms of methodologies, I'm really interested in, as I said before, critical discourse analysis, because it helps you reveal the, you know, the sort of hidden undercurrents in documents, which, and also, um, you know, you actually, once you identify injustices related, you know, in these documents, you actually, part of the methodology is creating a new narrative to um to counteract them which I really like and I also like going back to I think my background in information management for example I really really like um you know bibliographic analysis where you see all these figures and stuff like that like you know where people come from what they're writing from all of these sorts of scientific scientometrics, bibliometric analysis I really really like um yeah so it's difficult for me to talk about 10 years, I think, because um, I'm going to be retired in 10 years, I <laughs> hope. So but I really hope I you know, i guess I probably still keep working at some level. But let me look at the next five years, I think. I mean, I just wrote a research proposal, which would give me five years work, which is focused on epistemic justice, which will be working with care for dead, but also some large development organizations which are really addressing this issue in their work so that's that's something I'm interested I'm also interested in like taking a systemic approach to these sorts of the issue of epistemic injustice and um, you know how you can use this sort of analysis of um, you know niche activities in regimes I don't know if you know that but I think you're nodding, but like you know, that most of the social innovation and transformation is taking place in protected niches, but the general regime is not changing. And actually, so I think that's interesting to look at how what's happening in these niches and what the problems are at the r- regime level. That we stay in these sort of in unequal knowledge systems. Um, I think that my next five years, I want to do a lot of mentoring. With colleagues to you know support them particularly in um, doing research because I really like doing re- research with others. And um, another thing I I want to focus on a bit is looking like looking at what the CAM for Dev community is doing in terms of impact because I do think like it's had huge impact on lots of people. I mean you know I look at myself it's totally changed my life. And I think probably for other people, you know, they might not have this long history of contact with Care for Dev, but there will be lots of stories about how people have had new opportunities, maybe new jobs, new understandings, also making friends across continents. So that's a bit the sort of things I want to to concentrate on um, in the next five years. And I'm just hoping that my research proposal is approved. Yeah, 15% charge. So I'm not sure it's very likely. But I think a lot of these things will, I, you know, trying to look at ways to increase epistemic justice. I think that's the direction I want to take.
0: Absolutely. Um, a quick uh, side question for some of our listeners. You've mentioned discourse analysis a few times. And I, I also come from a, a, an academic background. So this is something that I'm familiar with. But um for KM practitioners out there that might be listening, um, what should they check out if they would like to learn a little bit more about this approach and, and how they might be able to use it themselves?
1: We wrote a tool actually on how you can use it as a non, you know, a non-expert on critical discourse analysis. We wrote a tool for how you can actually apply it in your work to do policy analysis. So after a so after our meeting, maybe I sent you the link because it really just tries to describe it because actually I think I couldn't, I don't know that I'm capable of describing it in words, but in in speech, but in written words, it's much more straightforward, but it takes you through the different stages.
0: Absolutely. And we can uh, include a link. Uh, these are, are these publicly available? Um, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Of course.
1: Uh, <laughs> knowledge Management for Development Journal, which oh. everything is always open access to everybody. Exactly,
0: Awesome. So listeners, when you, when you hear this, there's a link to these in the episode descriptions, check those out. Um, Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Sarah. Well, thank you very much, Mercy. I
1: really enjoyed it. I think I may have ranted at you a bit, but I did. (laughs) It was great to have the opportunity to talk about uh, all of the things I've been doing.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Um, so if folks want to learn more about the journal, they can visit KM4, that's the number four, dev.org and click on the Our Knowledge tab. Um, and you mentioned those other resources that we'll be including. Uh, any other uh, resources or links that you'd want to point folks to?
1: Um, I guess I think probably the most interesting would be, would be our online discussion platform, which is so, on a platform. Hosted by the, it's a IO platform hosted by the D Groups Foundation. Maybe that will be an interesting link for people to drop in and see what we're doing. And everybody's, you know, everybody is always welcome. Also at our, our knowledge cafes and things like that. Awesome. More than that.
0: Very cool. Definitely join in those conversations, listeners. Well, once again, I'm Mercy Harper. Thanks for listening to this APQC podcast. To learn more about our research, please visit apqc.org, and we hope you'll have a great rest of your day.